Today I interviewed Martin. Martin is a successful entrepreneur and his most recent company has over 80,000 users and he has been bootstrapped. Make sure to listen into this podcast interview to hear his journey, but also his advice on building and starting a successful business. He also has some unique experiences where he is not a technical person, but he has worked with technical people and grown a successful SaaS company. got to start listening to the customers and what they want but you're also kind of trying to listen to the market it's like okay what are the people doing what am i doing how do i differentiate am i the, the the pioneer am i the leader am i the follower and so on so you start kind of building a, a model that works for you hey everyone we are here with martin martinez martin is the founder of meet alfred a linkedin automation tool thanks for being here with me hey tyler thanks for having me Awesome. So, I mean, let's get started. First off, you are the founder of Meet Alfred. It's it's pretty big. I've looked into the tool several times, actually. I've, I've played around with it. It's been great. Um, so kind of going back in time, what problem were you initially trying to solve with Meet Alfred? What kind of, what issue did you see in the market that you needed to build a solution for? Well, this is the typical story of, of scratching your own itch, right? So I was running a consulting firm um, in around 2005, uh, sorry, 2015. And we tried everything to market this, this consulting business. It was mo more like a virtual mastermind program. Mm. And we tried paid advertising. We tried advertising on magazines, like you name it, we tried it all. Yeah. And at that time, I had a friend who ran a LinkedIn agency. And he said, well, why don't you try LinkedIn? So he basically took over my profile and started to do outreach, um, you know, a very systematic process. Yeah. And it was very, very successful. So after about three to six months of trialing this, we said, we need to roll this out. Um, the cost at the time was about two and a half thousand, three thousand dollars $3,000 a month. So to roll that out to about 15 consultants, it was going to be a bit pricey. Yeah. So uh, because the system in which he used for the outreach was kind of you know, programmatic, right. I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe I can hire VAs for, for the solution, right? Like yep. and hire 10 VAs and, you know, essentially they can do the same thing for the rest of the team. But we found also a capacity constraint. It's like, even with people doing it manually, it was very, very time consuming. It was like three hours a day per person. So it was yeah. just like, it wasn't scalable. So then I decided to look at tools and there were amazing tools that were you know, already in the market, but I'm not a technical person at all. So I need something very easy and dumb proof. Yeah. And I just couldn't find it. It was very complicated and stuff like that. So I thought, how hard could it be? I mean, I'm not a programmer, but I said, how hard could it be to build something to for this? So I went on to Upwork. I posted the job and that became the, the origin of the story. <laughs> but after we kind of started being successful with the tool ourselves internally, we actually gave it to our clients to use. And they were saying, well, you've had success. Can I use it for my business? So yeah. I said, yeah, of course. And in order to give them access, it was a Chrome extension at the time. Mm. So we just published it on the Chrome store and said, hey, well, here's the link on use it. Yeah. So that was around 2017. By January, February, 2018, we had 6,000 people using this product. Wow. I said to my partner, hang on a minute. What's going on here? <laughs> like, yeah. We're in a consulting business, but like, what is this? And right. And and at the time, was it was it totally free? Like anybody could go well, in? It was totally free because it was yeah. only for our clients. Wow. So it was like, we didn't know. And they kind of spread yeah. the word. Everybody loved it. And they, they spread the word. And all of a sudden, we had 6,000 people using it. Wow. It pretty That's awesome. And so, I mean, how much... How much effort did it take to code that up? I mean, you said you just went on Upwork. Was it pretty easy to get that up and running? 
Look, I, I have to say that you know you, you need to have a little bit of luck in, in business. And yeah. I did find someone who had just happened to build something very similar for someone else mm. who didn't pay him. Oh, I said, how much is this costing? I said, okay, here's the money. Like, just give it yeah. to me. I mean, I wasn't worried about, uh, it wasn't a, a very expensive, it wasn't as complex as my product is today, by the way. It was yeah. very simple. Right, oh, of course. But, but V1 or version 000.01. Right. That's what it was. <laughs> and it was quite expensive, but I kind of, you know, was lucky enough that this person, this gentleman out of India had built it for someone else yeah. and they didn't pay him. So we took it over. Wow. That's yeah, that's amazing. And like you said, yeah, some of it all, always is a little bit of luck. And I feel like you, so do you feel like you kind of stumbled on product market fit? Like it wasn't obviously super intentional, right? Yes and no. And I'll tell you why I say that. It, it, definitely lucky that I found this person that had a product yeah. that we then improved. But when it comes to the thing that I brought to the table, it was not technical technical skills at all. Yeah. Like, you know, I can barely use my iPhone. It's more that I am a user and yeah. I needed to be dumb proof for me. So then mm -hmm. I created a product that was suitable for me. Right. And when you're creating a product that is user-friendly, it becomes much easier to use and the adoptability is much faster. So yeah. that's essentially how we think or how I think that we, yes, we had this track of luck, but we also created a product that was so simple, so easy to use in every way that it became, you know, a second nature for, you know, people to kind of take it on and straight away be, be, be successful with it. So yeah. I think that's, that had to take a, a huge part of it. Yeah, of course. And then, I mean, that's, that's kind of the benefit, right? That you were able to build something so intuitive because kind of of your lack of, of technical knowledge, what challenges did you face with that? Like, was it difficult to communicate those things to a more technical person? Yes and no. I mean, uh, one of the other things that I, credit myself is that I have a bit of EQ and not necessarily IQ, but I, I yeah. have, you, you know, I have an ethnic background, Indians, there is a language barrier. So it's just a matter of how do you communicate in a way that is, that is dumbed down like a five-year-old and you're able to kind of really get the message clear, but I'm very visual, right? So I said, I want the button like this. I want the da 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 da. So it was kind of, you know, what he built at the back, I couldn't tell you what the hell was going yeah. on, but what it did at the front, I knew right. that that was going to work. Yeah. So it was kind of a, um, one of those things that you kind of have to be a little bit empathetic with people. Yeah. You have to understand that, you know, they, they're trying to do their best and, you know, some, you know, like a typical non-developer, I want things done yesterday, but you right. know, time. so you, you live through it. But it, it, I think the difference was really that I didn't need it as a business for one. Yeah. So I didn't, wasn't rushing to put a product out. So that oh. was a benefit. And two, that, you know, I kind of took my time to communicate and learn how they need to be spoken in a way that they would understand. Yeah. And then are there, I mean, just getting into the nitty gritty, like, are there any tools that you use to help you communicate like a digital whiteboard or things like that, that you could show kind of what you meant? Yeah. It was more like pen and paper to be honest yeah. and scan that through and send it. You know, again, the, the product wasn't as sophisticated as it is today. So yeah. you know, we had a bunch of buttons that we embedded into the uh, LinkedIn page itself uh -huh. and that made it super easy because like, okay, do this here. Okay. Right. Click the you're done right so yeah it was that kind of um that kind of tool at the time but yeah it was kind of you know put the buttons here and there and then i drew it on a paper or or i i photoshopped the buttons into the area and you know <laughs> nice. kind of the stuff in so yeah just kind of you know Scrappy methods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no i love that that's awesome um and then for for actually like you said you know the the beginning was a humble beginning a, a humble product but now it's much more sophisticated 
I'm just curious, honestly, how did you keep in touch with your customer base? Like, was it always just you that was suggesting new changes or like, how did you listen to your customers of like, okay, how can we now take this to the next level? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. And in, in my case, I, I was a heavy user of the tool, right? So I yeah. knew what was required, what I wanted it to do. However, as we started getting customers, obviously you're starting to listen to their needs and their use cases because they're very different to yours. Yeah. One particular um, thing that happened was the introduction of automated emails. Mm. And we didn't even have a, an interest for it, but we didn't even know what it was at the time, to be honest. Yeah. But an agency out of Singapore was using the product. And they said, could you automate not just messages, but emails? Because emails are free to open link profiles. Right. So, well, hello, let me find out what is an open link profile. Let me find out what is an email. Yeah. And then we just kind of said, you know, can you, can you build this? And that was kind of one example where we were the first in the market to do that because yeah. there was a request by a customer. Yeah. I have to admit that I'm not that great in having customer interactions because I'm an introvert. So for me, I'd rather sit behind the scenes and let my team, yeah. you know, base of it and whatnot. So how do you listen to the customer? First of all, it's by me being a true customer right. and that kind of gives me insight. But there is a point in time where the, the product is beyond you. You know what I mean? So yeah. you've got to start listening to the customers and what they want. But you're also kind of trying to listen to the market. It's like, okay, what are the people doing? What am I doing? How do I differentiate? Am I the, 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 the pioneer? Am I the leader? Am I the follower? And so on. So you start kind of building and a model that works for you. In our case, we, we led the industry. We were the first with emails. We were the first for group messages. We were the first for event messages. We were the first, first for so many different things. Yeah. And we were the first, and I still believe we're the only that does multi-channel, meaning mm. you can go on LinkedIn, email, and Twitter, and other channels. Right. Uh, but now we, we've taken a bit of a step back and yes, we kind of run out of ideas of what we can do with the product as far as the complexities of it. Yeah. Um, but we're also following. So we're seeing, okay, somebody came up with a new feature. Now let's, let's copy it rather than be Right. Copied. Yeah. Uh, so you, know, you evolve as, as you go. Yeah, totally. And, and I mean, on that same note, evolving as you go, like at the very beginning, you said it was free, you know, there are 6,000 people now using it. When did you decide like, Hey, we need to actually move some capital, like actually invest in this, hire more people. When was that moment that you were like, hey, this is really promising. We need to actually focus 100% on this. Right. Well, the first thing that we need to do is put a paywall. Yeah. <laughs> Just to see if anybody would actually pay. And you would yeah. think so people are using it and so happy with it. You would right. think that a percentage would. Now, as, as usual, people that use a free product, you know, when it comes to pay, they might not pay and not everybody paid. Yeah. So we converted, I don't know, maybe 2,000 people out of, yep. you know, 6,000 users. Yeah. What we then started doing is, is kind of look at this product as a business. Because at the beginning, it was just literally a, a tool for internal use only. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it became a revenue-generating product. So then we, we kind of looked at, you know, what are we, where do we stand in the market, and so on. And the thing that I took... I do take credit for that I came up with at the very beginning is to give this product a personality. And in the current name, it's called Alfred. Yeah. But prior, it was called Leonard. It was a, the original name is midleonard.com. And I did that with one specific reason. It's because software is a commodity. I don't care what anybody says. I yeah. don't care how special your software is. At the end of the day, it's just a tool and it can be easily copied. Yeah. So in our case, what we wanted to do is create a persona behind the product. And then, you know, we were getting tickets, email tickets and say, Hey, oh, I love Leonard or I love Alfred. Yeah. He's my best friend and this <laughs> and that. 
we created a, a, a feeling and an affinity with the customer mm-hmm. that was very unique. It did the same thing as many other products, yeah. but it was easier to use and it had this personality. So that's kind of how we we started evolving. And then thereafter, it was more, more about, we grew through acquisition, actually. So yes, we kept on building out the product, but there came a time where the Chrome extension wasn't the most desired, you know, platform. People were moving to the cloud. So instead of that, we actually acquired a company out of San Francisco that had the um, a desktop app. So we oh, acquired nice. that, converted, and then after that, we converted into into the cloud. So we did that through acquisition rather than building, because yeah. as revenue came in, I was instead of deploying more resources, more. You know, I, I like the, the path of least resistance. So if I can buy something and get it now, even if it's not perfect, I'm there now rather than yeah. the trials and tribulations of, you know, getting there the hard way. And and that's kind of been been my strategy. Nice. Wow. That's that's awesome. Um, and, I, and I love that. It is powerful. Like you said, the software is a commodity and I've used other LinkedIn automation tools. But like you said, I mean, even for me as, as a customer, like I, I think of Alfred and I immediately see, you know, the logo and I see the person in my mind. Right. And so, yeah, I, that is very powerful. I totally agree with that. And you have built other startups in the past. How has this experience been different than those other startups? Has it been smoother because of your past experience? Has it been harder in some ways? Like how, how has those past experiences helped you building Meet Alfred? Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm aging myself here. I'm turning 48 next month, and I can say that I don't build startups. I build businesses. Mm-hmm. They either fail or they succeed, but they're businesses. Yeah. And the whole concept of startups like is all with the tech. But I'm all yeah. old school. I start a company. I start a business. Nice. So you know, I I've been you know a serial entrepreneur for some time. My claim to fame came from launching what was the Australian Poker League. It was a mm. it was a poker com- competition that I launched in Australia after nice. um, I, I worked in the casino industry for about eight years. Uh, it's a company that I started out of my one bedroom apartment. It was. Uh, a poker tournament that's run in pubs and clubs all over Australia. It still runs today. It started in wow. 2005. It grew from zero to 120 franchises in two countries, from zero to over 500 staff, from zero to, you know, having tournaments in eight, 1,800 venues in Australia, and from zero to over $50 million in turnover in three years. Wow. So it was one of these kind of the, the right idea, the right place at the right time. And there was a lot of luck involved, but there was also a lot of good execution on my part. And again, I'm, I'm more of a product guy rather than a CEO that knows how to run companies. No, I just look at what the end consumer receives and I'm, I, I got some good affinities. So yeah. I was a rocket ship and that was a great success, but what happens when, and I was fortunate enough to exit that business as well. And what happens normally, or what happened to me, and it's not uncommon is that when you have this level of success so early in your career is that you think your shit doesn't stink and you start getting involved in stuff you know, I could do this again and again. And I can tell you uh, since 2000, between 2011 and 2017, uh, when we launched this software, I basically failed miserably. Every business that I was putting money in and investing, I bought franchises and they would fail. I do this and that. So it gave me a a humble pill that I had to swallow of you you don't have it figured out. Uh, It is an ongoing learning experience. But what I did do is I learned so much of what not to do that I applied absolutely everything to this product when we found, when we struck luck again, that, you know, I applied everything that I did wrong before. This is not going to happen here. So I I attribute part of the success to the current company that I'm running 
because of my learnings yeah. and a little bit of luck when we first got started. But every business needs a little bit of luck in order to be successful just as much. Hey everyone, in this quick break, I wanted to give a shout out to Coconut VA. They are making this podcast possible. This podcast is hosted by me, but a lot of the backend work is actually done by a Coconut VA. I'm the co-founder of Coconut VA, and we find Filipino virtual assistants for U.S. companies. So if you've got a proven business model, you're growing, you need help with operations, general admin, lead generation, or really any help around the business, you could probably hire a Coconut VA. You can find a link on my podcast page, thebtspodcast.com, or at coconutva.com. My podcast is a great example of how a Coconut VA could help you. I've done the work to systematize my podcast, systematize the production process, and now I can bring in a Coconut VA to actually execute that process. If you're ready to delegate tasks, you're ready to hire a Coconut VA. Totally. And then, I mean, are there any, obviously like you need to go through that experience to some degree, but are there any kind of palpable lessons that you could, you would give to somebody else? Like, Hey, maybe they've had a success or maybe they haven't had any successes. How do they know when to go in all, all in on something? And when it's just like a shiny object that like, okay, you need to say no to that. Focus on what you're currently at. Yeah. It's been interesting because there was this, I come from Australia and one of the sayings that somebody told me when the consulting business was going okay, but it wasn't like taking off. Yeah. Um, and they said, when are you going to take this dog and shoot it in the back? And that stuck with me, like saying, well, yeah. I, I'm either going to prove a point here or I'm going to shoot it in the back. Yeah. Um, so what what I've come to learn with, with these things in business is this. It's all about eyeballs, okay? I don't call it marketing. I don't call it anything. I don't call it awareness. I don't call it anything. To me, it's literally eyeballs. Yeah. And the fortunate thing that happened to me in the poker company is that I had a franchise network and the franchisees were putting posters and flyers in all of the pubs and clubs around Australia. That became the marketing. That became the eyeballs that we were getting. Yeah. And I learned that from that point forward, I didn't really learn how to do marketing and how to get eyeballs. I, I knew how to create a great product, yeah. but I didn't learn the lesson of how do I get eyeballs? It was my franchisees that did that. So that's part of the reason why I failed in so many other ventures thereafter is because I couldn't get eyeballs. Interesting. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say with that is that you probably will find that not the best product is actually the one you buy. You normally buy the one that gets the most eyeballs, whether it's through marketing or through influencers or through this or through that. Whatever the, the, the way that you can get the eyeballs in there is the way you're going to be successful. Because if you have the best product in the world, nobody knows about it, it's going to fail. Yeah. Simple. So it doesn't always come to the quality of the product, but really the eyeballs that you can get. And if you can focus on a way of getting eyeballs, even before you start, you're going to have a way of getting somebody to pay you something. And yes, right. then you have product market feed and all these other things. But, totally. you know, product market feed can only happen if somebody went through your door. Yeah. For that. Right. Well, and then that's an interesting point is, I mean, in your your future ventures, are you tempted now to, to look at, hey, this company already has a lot of eyeballs. Let me just buy that company and then improve it. Or do you like building kind of from from ground up? Well, look, once you're a, an entrepreneur, it's very hard to stomach buying something that somebody else values, right? Yeah. And everybody that owns anything always overvalues yeah. what they have. 
I think it's worth this. You think it's worth that. And then right. we have to what meet in the middle. My strategy right now, and part of the reason why I just recently moved to Dubai is because we want to build a portfolio of software companies. Mm -hmm. And the key for me to do it as a non-technical founder has been the fortunate or smart approach of outsourcing everything in my business. Yeah. And include that includes development. So now, although I have still a technical team in-house, which is essentially my CTO team, they actually manage an external development company. Gotcha. And they have world-class developers, resources, training, support, everything. So I know that me as a as a non-technical founder, if if my main developers get hit by a bus, touch wood, it doesn't happen, the business is not going to fail now because we have this insurance policy by working right. with external development company and i've done that for development i've done that for marketing i've done that for support and everything else and some of it is internal and most of it is external so for me now the approach is we are looking at building two other products this year relatively in the same space that we're in and next year we're looking to start acquiring using the profits of these combined entities yeah. into acquiring rather than building and you, we think we've got a model of which not only to find these companies, but to also actually take them over without the need of a technical team. You know, we don't have to act or hire. We can yeah. just take over the tech and run it. And that's what normally happens when you're actually buying something relatively small. It's one or two developers working together. Yeah. They made it to like, I don't know, 50 grand a month or whatever. And then right. they want to exit. Okay, well, I don't need to buy your technical team. I just need the tech. Can my technical team take it over? Great. We'll acquire it and then we'll roll it for you. Wow. I love that. Well, and then, I mean, going back to, to somewhat of your beginning with that, that first guy on Upwork, obviously it's probably changed for you now, but what advice do you have on finding somebody that, that is going to work well? Because you, you are not technical. So how do you vet somebody that is technical knowing that they are going to be a good fit? <clears throat> well, I'll tell you, I, I tell you that the agency that we partnered with came from Upwork. <laughs> so, you know, we, we haven't let go of the old ways of doing things, but let me yeah. tell you what happened. At the beginning of 2022, we had five full-time developers. Um, we let go of one. It wasn't working out. Another one left. And then soon after, another one left. That went from five developers to two. Wow. So what happened? What I was trying to do is trying to hire more people to replace. But because the, the timing was just like everybody left in a, in a very short period of time. What we found myself is, one, I'm not a technical founder. So how can I interview for someone right. that, you know, has technical skills. I can't yeah. test them. I can't do nothing. And I can't rely on my developer because now they're overwhelmed. They're doing the work of five people. Yeah. And they're not recruiters either, and neither am I. So we we kind of struggle with that for a couple of months. And then we said, look, we've had success outsourcing marketing. Would it work with development? And instead of putting all our eggs into hiring more people, and especially when our product grew by acquisition, meaning that it was a bit of a Frankenstein with a lot of different different tech stacks that got put together. We were struggling with finding people that were multi-stack or, you know, like qualified. Yeah. So we went, I went through the process of saying, heck it, let's just give it a go, try to find an agency. So I put a project on Upwork. I put a decent, decent enough budget so people didn't think it was a joke. I went through a, a, a very specific process and the process was, we, we had over a hundred applicants, by the way. So it was, it was, and it was, we specifically asked for an agency that did this, this, and this. And then what, what I did is I called that hundred plus to 30. And then I called that to another 20 and then so on and so forth. But I did all of the non-technical conversations. Mm -hmm. So it was all business. 
This yeah. is what I, what do you offer? Can you, can we work together? Right. Once I nail it, narrowed it down to about five, that's when I gave, or gave over or gave control to my technical team or my two guys left yeah. to them from a technical point of view. Mm. And then they could tell me, yes, these guys are legit. They know what they're doing. They understand. So yeah. I kind of had that back, back up to be able to kind of qualify them. Yeah. After that, then we went through a short listing and then refer references and this and that, like a job description, like a job offer, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, we didn't really negotiate that, that hard on price. It wasn't about that. It was about efficiency. Can you deliver? Can you get me this done? Yeah. And can you become my partner? That's kind of what the, the, the key word was partner. And once we, we found one, we went all in. Uh, we did a, a bit of a, a, an assessment. We did a trial. And then we've been working with them for over six months. So it's, nice. it's been it's been the same process as I did originally with Upwork. It was literally yeah, just... Right. Yeah. A proven process. That's awesome. I, I love that. And I think that's important is is relying on people and trust. Like I feel like that does take a level of trust, right? You trusted your technical team to to vet them appropriately. And and like you said, you've outsourced several different aspects of the business and focused on what you're good at, right? Correct. And look, at the end of the day, one of the things that I did wrong before and I've done right since is not only trusting my staff, but empowering them. There's a difference, you know, I can trust them, but if you don't empower them to become themselves and their best versions of themselves and support them and give them every praise and deserved and every resource they need to be successful, you can't be successful because these things, it's, it's a team sport. Business is a team sport. Very rarely does a one-man show be successful. Yeah. You're not going to make a billion-dollar company out of that. You, you might right. make a million-dollar company, but not, not a multi-million-dollar company either. So it's just yeah. a question. Uh, in my case, before, I was a bit of a Hitler and a, and a, and a micromanager. And now I literally relinquish everything and let them fail. And I've, you know, my wife actually struggles with this sometimes. Like, you know, <laughs> let's say a server goes down or something goes down, right? Like whatever happens. And she goes, you know, how, how are you not stressed out? And I said, yeah. I can't do anything. Like, what am I going to do? Like, yeah. you know, I can't, where am I going to go? Where the hell right. is AWS? I don't know where the fuck it is. Like, yeah. just, so I just, I just worry about the things that I can't control and the ones yeah. that I can't just let go, literally let go. Yeah. Because that energy is kind of, you know, it drains you and you're not actually applying the energy you've actually got for the right yeah. thing, which solving whatever you can control. Right. Totally. And I mean, I'm much younger than my journey, but I've, I've already noticed that with me and my co-founders, that's been a huge lesson that we've learned is it is a little bit of perfectionism. Like I feel like every founder has that to some degree, like this is your baby. Like you want it to be treated exactly. And you know what, you want it to grow exactly how you want it to. You have this very specific vision, but you do have to let go of that to a certain degree. And one, one way that we put it is like, we have to be okay with trusting somebody to do, you know, maybe B plus work at the beginning. Like, yeah, if we did it personally, maybe we could get it A plus, but like, let's trust this person to empower them. Like you said, to do B plus work. And we know that they're going to get to a point where it's even better than what we would do. Um, so you do have to deal with a little bit of that discomfort at the beginning. Let, let me, let me add something to that. And if you, you, you was the, use the word perfectionist, I am a perfectionist. I, 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 I can't be described in any other way, but a perfectionist. <laughs> And, and a lot of attention to detail. Yeah. But I, what, what I've come to learn is that consumers are not perfectionists. Therefore, mm-hmm. 80% is good enough. And that's a very hard thing to say by a perfectionist. Yeah. How do you say, oh, yeah, 80% is good enough when you know this 20% is just doing your heading? 
Yeah. The thing is, the market doesn't appreciate this extra 20%, mm. at least not off the bat. Like and unless you're in luxury goods or something, you know, where there yeah. is a appreciation, then yes, of course. Like that's why a Rolls Royce costs what it costs. Right. And, and luxury handbags cost what they cost because it's handcrafted in Italy by some monk or whatever, you know, yeah. whatever. There's a different value proposition where it comes to technology. Yeah. Yes, it has to be functional, of course, but from a visual perspective, from this and that, 80% is good enough, and then you improve. And most of the time, you'll never get to 100% because you're building other things. And that extra 20% is just nobody cares. Nobody right. really appreciates it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally agree with that. Well, perfect. This has been awesome. I've learned a ton from this. Do you have any other last pieces of advice for, for somebody starting out, getting their own business up and running? What you know, do you have any tips or tricks for them uh, starting out? Well, the, the one that I always go with, uh, which is not necessarily a good one, is fake it till you make it, right? <laughs> you got to present yourself in a way that is not, doesn't look like a startup. I mean, businesses in reality don't want to deal with startups, yeah. especially in the B2B space. Now, if you're in the consumer space, maybe there is a cachet that, you know, is a plus for you. But when it comes to B2B, nobody wants to deal with a startup. So don't behave like one. And this whole startup scene, it's all wonderful. But I think that, you know, you, you've got to think about this as a business that's going to make money, right? Yeah. It's actually going to make money because right. if you don't, nobody's going to value it. Well, no, your customers are not going to pay you the money to use the product and nobody's going to ever buy you or invest in you because it doesn't make money or doesn't have any uh, visibility of making money. So that's kind of, you know, one, one word of advice. The other one is that you've got to look at it always from the customer's point of view. Mm. It's not about the customer's always right because they were often wrong, right? <laughs> but... Yeah. The reality is that you have to see your product the way a customer sees it and not the oh way God. you need it. You know what I mean? Who cares? Yeah. Nobody cares that there's code behind it because I don't know where the hell it is. I don't even know what's happening, but yeah. I know it's working. And that's why you think of the iPhone. It's so celebrated and it's so successful because it is so simple. Right. And, you know, the, the millions of hours of engineering that goes into this thing, you know, you can't be counted. Yeah. But that's kind of a perfect example. So those are the two things that I would say. And then, you know, have a crack, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> if it doesn't work, you know, like the, the, yeah. the cost of starting a business today is so, so, so low that you, you, you know, you should be able, you, you should be able to give, give it at least one try. Yeah. Uh, and one last thing that, that I don't think gets mentioned very often, and, and we've experienced it quite a bit. We get hit all the time by venture capitalists, mm. you know, oh, investing you in this and this. And to me, oh, to be honest, my opinion, and I'm probably going to get shot for this, is that capitalists are the new form of a slave labor. Mm. What they want is they want to, they want you to prove you, the product out. Yep. And then you kind of started, you know, sprinkling there. Yeah. And the sparking of the of your success, that's when they want to put money. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can, you know, we can do all right. of this can do shit. All they have is money. And then and money is easy to get. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, try to bootstrap. I'm fully bootstrapped, never raised yep. a dollar. Everybody's throwing money at me left, right, and center. I'm hyper profitable. I got, you know, 75% margins or more. Like that's a successful business. Yeah. Right. Totally. You can do that. Then you don't need anyone's money. You don't need anyone uh, on the board of your company. Like, come on, man. Like, how these companies, 99% of these companies are tiny. What do you yeah. need a board of directors and all that kind of stuff? So, right. We'll just throw that in there. Yeah, I love that. And and you've hit a sympathetic audience because I, I'm definitely on that camp of, of not. Getting funding, we've had some, you know, opportunities to do that, but we are so grateful that we didn't because like you said, you, you just now have bosses and like just very, very demanding bosses that demand it the, the purpose of being a, an entrepreneur. Like yeah. 
the definition of entrepreneur has two things. One is that we're problem solvers mm -hmm. and two is that we're completely unemployable. We yeah. can't work for somebody else. So yeah. if you can't work for somebody else, if they got money invested, you're working for them, period. Yeah. Like there's no two ways about it. I don't care what percentage they have. Right. You know, if smallest of percentages, you still have to hear and listen to them. Whereas yeah. if you do and your co-founder or your team or whatever, you can make decisions, you can screw up, you can be successful, you can do it all on your own. And, and people don't give themselves a chance. Like they're yeah. saying, I need money. Well, what you need is customers. That's the money. Right. <laughs> right. You don't need someone with money to, to ride along. So, yeah. But anyway. It's, totally, uh, totally. I agree. Yeah, we could have a whole episode on that. I, I think I'm I will sure. have an episode on that in the future. <laughs> well, perfect. Thank you so much, Martin. Really appreciate you being on today. And uh, yeah, look forward to sharing your, your knowledge with everybody. No problems, mate. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for listening to Behind the Startup. If you like the show, make sure to follow the podcast and leave a review. Thank you.